Amen. Do you ever have things slip your mind? I didn't, I didn't figure you did. Uh, we, we all have things that, that are really important that, that we think about, you know, just at the wrong time, and then it slips our mind and we never get around to it. And sometimes there are things that's, that's very important. Like, some of y'all need to be reminded to go call your mom because it's just slipped your mind. We, we forget sometimes, or it slips our mind, you know, like, need to watch what we eat a little bit. Or we need to save a little bit more money. You know, that stuff just slips our mind. And sometimes our, our minds have this weird thing that happens where it's not that, that things slip our mind, but we just never think about it to begin with. You ever have that happen? And sometimes that happens to things that are very important, and sometimes it happens to things that aren't important. There are some things that we just never think about. I bet you've never thought about the first guy who ate a lobster. I bet you've never thought about the fact that the whole point of playing golf is to play golf less than the people you're playing golf with. I bet you've never thought about that, the fact that the clothes, that every garment you own, the clothes on your back, it's nothing but a bunch of strings held together by other strings. I bet you've never thought about the fact that with your naked eye, you have seen more of the surface of the moon than you have of the planet Earth. I bet you've never thought about the fact that somebody who is 61 years of age or older has lived through a quarter of American history. That depressed some of y'all really bad just then, didn't it? <laughs> what was the War of 1812 like? No. Um, some... Sometimes we just don't think about things. And I'm sure I would be almost willing to bet that that's a great way to start a sermon, isn't it? Let me back up. I, would, I, I feel like, it's very unlikely, that this week many of you have thought much about what Christians call the Old Testament law, what Jewish people call the Torah. 613 commands, thou shalt and thou shalt not. 3,500 years old that God gave to the people of Israel through Moses, the man of God. I bet very few of you have thought this week about how that affects your daily life. And yet, the Old Testament law of God, given to the people through Moses, is really at the very heart of how we connect with God and how we know Him. I mean, God is the one who gave it. And as we've been studying the book of Galatians on Sunday morning, the question of how we are to relate to the Old Testament law keeps coming up over and over and over and over again. And we may not think about the Old Testament law, but many of us do believe that really that's how we know God, by keeping laws. Maybe not the Old Testament law, but certain rules that we have to follow. And the very reason that some of you are filled with doubt about your relationship to God right now is because you believe that knowing God is all about keeping certain rules. And because you feel like you haven't kept the rules, you wonder, does God really love me? Some of you are going through circumstances and situations in life right now, and you feel like God has abandoned you, and you feel like maybe I did something to deserve this. The reason you feel that way is because you think that the way you really know God is through keeping rules. Well, the Apostle Paul is going to tell us something incredible as we look in the book of Galatians today. He's going to say that we do not know God on the basis of law, 
but on the basis of promise. Say, what's the difference? Here's the difference, and you have to know this right away. The difference is a law says to you, you do this. A promise says to you, I will do this. Do we know God on the basis of a law we keep or promises God keeps? Paul's going to show us that we are not saved by laws we keep, but we are saved by promises that God has kept. And he makes this incredible point beginning in Galatians chapter 3, and we're going to begin reading in verse 15. So if you have your Bible, I want to invite you to stand and to honor God's Word as we read this together. If you're able, Galatians chapter 3, verse 15, and we will read through the end of the chapter. If you don't have a Bible with you today, that's okay. We've got the words up on the screen. I want you to see the Word of God. Galatians chapter 3 and verse number 15. Paul says, now... To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. Your Bible may say, and to his seed, but it does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgression. Until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is male, no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you, you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. You may be seated. The Lord's going to help us this morning as we look at this great passage of Scripture. Now, just to catch you up, if you have not been with us as we've studied the book of Galatians together, or um, if, if you just don't remember, in the book of Galatians, the Apostle Paul is combating an aberrant stream of Christian teaching that is being promoted by a group of teachers called the Judaizers. And they're called Judaizers because they have a Jewish background, and they're preaching a very Jewish message that is saying to the church of Galatia, for you to really be a Christian, for you to really experience all of the blessings of God, you need to believe in Jesus, and you need to add the Old Testament law on top of that. Now, properly understood, what the Judaizers were preaching is legalism, and the very strictest definition of that term. So roll that word around in your mind for a minute. 
legalism. Some of you have heard that word before. Maybe you've heard it. Somebody used the word legalistic to describe a church. And a lot of times we use that term maybe to say a church culture or certain people who are very, very strict. There's a lady that I used to pastor And she was telling me, she had a question for me recently, and she texted me. And she was raised uh, in churches in West Virginia where women do not wear pants. Women do not wear makeup. Women do not let their hair down. And I think most of them handle snakes. But um, it's West Virginia. What are you going to do? But she was saying that her sister's church was very legalistic. What does it mean to be a legalist? Well, the definition is really right on the front of the word, isn't it? Legalism is lawism. And properly understood, true legalism is believing that I can earn my spot on God's team because of my ability to keep the law. And we don't necessarily have that kind of true hard legalism today. We're so far removed from Judaism and Jewish culture and Jewish thought that none of us have given probably any thought to keeping the law as it's written in the Bible. Yet there is a tendency some of us have to let a kind of soft legalism creep into our lives even after we've been saved sometimes for many, many years. And that is we start to believe that things like how much we pray and how much we read the Bible and the way we dress when we come to church and certain Christian habits, those things impact how we are loved by God. They determine how much we can be blessed by God. In other words, we think that God really does grade us based upon our performance. Because that's how the world works, right? At every season of life, you are graded based upon how you perform. That's why in school you get grades. When you play sports, you get a score. Or at least kids used to get scored when they played sports. Now, you know, we don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. But it used to be there were winners and there were losers who were graded based upon how well they did. You go to work and the paycheck you get every week is a judgment of your performance. We expect that God works the same way, don't we? Now, we do believe that God is good and God is gracious, and so he basically grades on a curve. So if we just give B-level Christianity, he might bump us up to an A-minus. But basically, the way we perform determines how much God can bless us, how much he can love us. So we don't think about connecting with God on the basis of keeping the law, but we do think that it comes down to our performance at some level. So every time we doubt... Wondering if God really loves us, what are we really doing? We are betraying a legalistic kind of thinking. Every time we think, maybe God has turned against me because of something in my past, we are betraying a legalistic kind of thinking. Every single time we look down on somebody who is not as spiritual as we are, we are betraying a legalistic kind of thinking. Every time we come to worship and we see other people raise their hands And we see tears coming down their faces as they are free to give glory to Jesus. And we've had a bad week. We hadn't prayed all week. We haven't read our Bible. We cussed the cat and kicked the dog. And we can't worship because we don't feel the presence of God. And we think, surely God can't meet with me. We are betraying a legalistic spirit. Paul is going to blow all of that out of the water as he shows us that God does not save us based upon laws that we keep, but on promises that he keeps. And underneath everything Paul is saying is a monumental thought. And here's what it is. He's saying that in the gospel, God is proving that he does not want you to be religious. God is not making religious people. God is making sons and daughters through grace. 
And I want to show you this difference between law and promise. There's some complicated things in these verses, but I think we can get through it together. I want to show you this difference between law and promise by bringing out three principles in this passage of Scripture. The first is in the first paragraph in verses 15 through 18. It's this principle. The gospel is a gift, not a payday. The gospel is a gift, not a payday. Now, in verse number 15, the Apostle Paul is continuing what he had been saying before to the church of Galatia. And that is this, that to these Gentiles who were being told they needed to become Jewish to really know God, he says to them, listen, if you have believed the same gospel that Abraham believed with the same kind of faith that Abraham had, then you can enjoy the same blessings that Abraham was promised. And it's an incredible mind shift for these people because there were some people in the church of Galatia who thought because of their Jewish DNA, they were more superior than other believers. And there were other believers who thought because of their lack of Jewish DNA, they were inferior, they weren't good enough, and they didn't measure up. Paul says it's not about being a Jew, but he says if you put your faith in Jesus, then you're more like Abraham than those people who have Abraham's DNA without Abraham's faith. And so he continues saying to these people, look, there's a great continuity in how God works in the Old Testament. God was not doing one thing with Abraham and then one thing with Moses and then another thing with Jesus. God has always been doing the same thing. And what God has always been doing is saving people by grace, through faith. God has always been coming to sinners who deserve nothing from God but judgment and giving them nothing but blessing. That's all God has ever done. And so now Paul wants to show how God has done this through Abraham. And he begins by giving the example in verse 15 of a man-made covenant. And really the word covenant is the word for will. You know what a will is. A will is an agreement, a contract, a commitment from a person they make while they're alive to give certain things to certain people when they die. You know what a will is. Um, Like you, maybe my whole retirement plan for the future depends on a will. It depends, I'm hoping, I'm praying, man, that there's some rich cousin out there in Luxembourg somewhere, and he's going to cash out, buddy, and I'm going to get it all. But like all y'all, I'm finding out that I'm just kidding to poor folk. And so, my inheritance might be a couple of commemorative Dell Earnhardt plates that somebody bought on QFC. That's all I'm going to get. But the idea that Paul's getting at here is that once a wheel has been enacted... There comes a point, obviously, when when, when the lawyer's reading the will and probate, they're, you know, divvying up the goods. You can't go back on that. And you can't change it. Because this is how covenant relationship works. Now, we are at a huge disadvantage today because we don't really think about life in terms of covenant relationships the way they did in the Bible. The only real covenant relationship that we have that exists much anymore and is fading quickly is that of marriage. All of our relationships are built on contracts. We enter into business relationships based on what's good for me. And if we have a contract so that if you fail to hold up your end of the bargain and what's good for me, then I can back out of the relationship or I can take you to court or whatever. But marriage isn't supposed to work that way. You're supposed to stand before God, right, when you get married, or even if it's a justice of the peace, you come together with this other person and you say, I am from this moment on putting your well-being above my own. I'm putting the good of our relationship as a unit above my own personal wants and my personal needs. That's why the preacher made you say when you got married that you would love this person for better or worse. He wasn't giving you a choice. It's like, you know, preacher, better sounds good to me. Richer or poor, we'll take richer, but we don't want poor. He wasn't giving you a choice. 
He was making you say, look, richer or poor. Some of y'all thinking, I signed up for richer and all I've got is poor. But if you come along at some point in your marriage and you tell your spouse, all I wanted was better, all I wanted was richer, all I wanted was sickness, and all I've got was worse, poor, and, uh, you know, all I wanted was good days, and we've had nothing but bad days, and so I'm not going to love you anymore, then what have you done? You've changed the terms of the agreement. You've walked out of that covenant. And it's no longer a covenant of blessing and a covenant of love. That's Paul's point. That if God started changing his covenant to Abraham, then the whole covenant, the whole system falls apart. And here's what Paul's really getting at. You see it there in verse number 16. That the covenant was not about Abraham. The promise was about Jesus. The promise to Abraham was a promise about Jesus, a promise for Jesus, a promise to Jesus. It's all about Jesus. what, What Paul is saying here is incredible. He's saying that, yes, God promised to bless the world through Abraham, but the blessing that God gave to Abraham that would bless the world is Jesus. He is the promise that God kept. He is the one who makes and keeps the promises to Abraham. Now, Paul goes even further, and he says in verse number 16 or 17, this is what I mean. Thank you, Paul, for explaining us, because some of us are having a hard time, I can tell. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, on your Old Testament timeline, you've got Abraham, 430 years later, you've got Moses. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. What God did in Moses in giving the law does not undo everything that he did in Abraham. And what Paul is getting at is this great point. He's saying that God either saves us by what we do for him or by promises he makes and keeps for us. There is no middle ground. It's not kind of up to me and kind of up to God. It's not God and me totally working together in sync and in harmony. It's none of that. It's either me doing it or it's God doing it. And there's a great scene from Abraham's life where God gives him this covenant that proves this. So listen to this. If none of this makes sense, this will help you, I promise. In Genesis chapter 12, God had came to Abraham and he said, Abraham, I'm going to make you the father of a great nation. I'm going to bless the world through your descendants. Abraham is in his 70s, has no kids, and you 70-year-olds, you know, you don't need to be having kids when you're that age. Like I've got a 20-month-old at my house and I'm 34 and it's about to kill me. When you're 70 years old, you don't need to be worried about that. But Abraham steps out and says, God, let's go for it. And he follows the Lord. But after a few years, there are no children. There's no hope of any children because they're old people. They're not going to have babies. And finally, in Genesis 15, Abraham says to God, he says, look, you promised me that you were going to give me all these children. And there are no children. He said, I'm going to have to give all of my stuff to my servant, Eleazar. And he said, God, why are you not holding up your end of the bargain? Why are you not keeping your promises to me? Have you ever felt that way about God? So God says, all right, Abraham, here's what we're going to do. He said, I'm going to make a covenant with you. And here's how they made these kind of promises back in the day. Here's how kings would enter into agreements. What they would do is they would get all these animals together. And God tells Abraham, here's the shopping list. He says, bring a goat, a ram, a cow, a pigeon, and a turtle dove. And I guess a partridge in a pear tree. They had the whole petting zoo. The whole petting zoo is there. And what you would do back in the day when you would make this kind of agreement with somebody is you would cut those animals in half. And you would lay these animals kind of out in this walkway of blood and guts and gore. And then you and the person that you were making the covenant with, you would walk hand in hand or arm in arm. You would walk through those dead animal pieces in a symbolic way of saying, if I break my promises to you, then I want what happened to those animals to happen to me. That is an attention getter. 
That's why today we pay five bucks and go to the notary. That's, you know, a whole lot easier. So Abraham gets all of the animals and he lays everything out, kills all the animals, lays them out, and he's waiting for God to show up so they can go through the blood and the death and the gore together. And it gets later and later and later, and God never shows up. And then the Bible says Abraham falls asleep. And while Abraham is asleep, he has this vision of this smoking, burning oil lamp. It's dark, and yet it's giving off light. It's shrouded in mystery, and yet it's showing glory. This mysterious thing that Abraham can't even describe, going through the animal bits by itself. And it was God saying to Abraham, Abraham, this promise is not dependent on you. Abraham, I will walk through this by myself. Abraham, I would rather die than break my promise to you. And what Paul does in Galatians chapter 3 is he goes all the way back to Genesis 15. He goes to the cross and he brings it home to us and he says at the cross, God did die to make his promises to you. And God did die to keep his promises to you. So that in Christ, every blessing that God promised Abraham is yours because he walked through death without you because he offered up his life without you. He is the one who makes the promises. He is the one who keeps the promises. He is the one who brings blessings to his people so that now every good and precious gift God has to give does not depend on my ability to keep a law. It depends on God's commitment to keep his promises. Paul said that is the way this works. And friends, our standing before God cannot be both. It has to be one or the other. It has to be my saying to God, I will keep this law. Or it is God saying to me, I will keep this promise. Paul just puts it very explicit and very clear in Romans chapter 4, where he asks this question in Romans 4, 3. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's Genesis 15. Paul says, now to the one who works, to the one who earns his standing before God by his own effort, by his religion, by all the things he does. His wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So let me make this as clear as I can to some of you, because some of you are right on the verge. You're right on the verge of trusting in Jesus as your Savior. For the first time in your life, maybe you've lived a long time, maybe you haven't. Maybe you've been in church your whole life, maybe you're back for the first time in a while. But you're starting to ask questions about your soul, wondering, what do I have to do to experience forgiveness? What do I need to do to know that my sin and my past and my guilt has been taken care of? What do I need to do to bring peace to my conscience? Paul says in Romans chapter 4, what you need to do is precisely nothing. Stop. Stop trying to earn it. Stop trying to work. Stop trying to cobble together the good things that you can do to impress God. Quit working and trust Jesus who worked in your place. That's how this works. Paul says God does not save us because we keep the rules. He saves us because God keeps His promise. And His promise to Abraham all of those years ago was that He would bless the Gentiles like us when we believe that same God and believe that same promise and trusted in the true Son of Abraham that He would would bless us through faith. And so today, 
For all of our ups and downs we have, for all of our doubts and all of our confusion and our fear, our worry if God accepts us, our confusion as to whether or not we really belong to Him, it all comes down to a failure to really understand that God saves us by promise. Because some of you are convinced that God is going to give you what you deserve. And for some of you, you're okay with that because you you think you deserve more than you do. Others of you know exactly what you deserve and it scares you to death. Listen, God does not give us what we deserve. He gives us grace. He comes to us when we could do nothing for Him. And He saves us. Just again, think about Abraham. What did God do for Abraham? God provided for Abraham what He could not provide for Himself. He promised him a son and gave him a son when Abraham was too stinking old. It's impossible. And God says, I will do it. I will make the promise and I will keep it. Friends, that's exactly how Jesus saves us. Not because we can contribute, but because he said, I will save you by grace. And the cross will prove it forever. So the gospel is not, it is not a paycheck God gives us for what we've done. It's a gift. It's a promise. Here's the second principle we need to, go to, under, need to understand to go further. Verses 19 through 22. Paul says this, the law was given to make things worse before it made things better. Now, if you think, well, if God is saving people by promise, and that's what he's been doing before the law, the natural question we have is the question that the Apostle Paul asked in verse number 19. Why then the law? Why did God give us the law? What's the point in it? What's the purpose of it? If the law can't get me to God, why did God give the law? And he says there that it was added because of transgression. It was put in place because of our sin until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. It was put in place because we're sinful until Jesus would come to save us from our sin. And what Paul's point, is really simple. He says some complicated things here, but his point basically is really simple. And it's this. God did not give the law so that in keeping the law and obeying the rules and doing your best, you could earn your blessings and acceptance before God. God did not give you the law so that you could save yourself by keeping the law. God gave you the law to show you there's no hope you could ever keep the law. He gave you the law to realize how hopelessly lost and sinful you were. You think, do you ever think religion makes people feel bad? When you ever come to church to hear a sermon, you think, man, that just makes me feel terrible. You think, man, all these religious people with all the rules, it just makes me feel bad. What Paul is saying is that Old Testament religion, rightly understood, is supposed to make you feel bad. It's supposed to make you feel bad because the law says to you, no matter what you do, no matter how hard you try, no matter how, no matter how diligent you are, no matter how much you sweat and break your back trying to satisfy the law, you'll never do it. There's always more to do. There's always another hill to climb. There's always another rule to keep. There's always more to do. God uses the law to show us that we are so sinful we can never save ourselves. And in realizing we are that hopelessly lost, because the law taught us that, we look outside of ourselves to Jesus, who alone can save us. That's what Paul's getting at here. It's like this. The law functions in our lives, before we come to Jesus, like a mirror. I hope and I trust that most of you looked in a mirror before you came to church today. Most of you look like you did. Some of our teenage boys. But if you looked in a mirror this morning, if you looked in a mirror, all that mirror did was tell you the truth. Now I'll tell you something, that mirror's cold. 
It is unfeeling. It is uncaring. That mirror cuts it straight. And it doesn't care what you think about it. It don't really care how you respond to it. All it does is show you the truth. It shows you the truth about that nose hair that needs to be picked, doesn't it, guy? It shows you the truth about those few extra pounds that you've put on lately. And it'll tell you that. But look, that mirror can't help you, can it? Cover girl, she might help you. A treadmill and a gym membership might help you. But that mirror can't do anything to help you. Paul is saying to us in this text, the law is like a mirror. It shows us our flaws, but it cannot help us fix our flaws. The law was not given. The law was not given by God because God knew you were so great that you could keep the law and save yourself. The law was given because God knew how sorry you were, and God wanted to show you how helpless it would be if you were left to yourself, and so you would feel the guilt and the weight and the shame of being under the law and look to Jesus who could save you. So is the law contrary to the purpose of God? Paul says, of course not. He said the law was given to Moses through angels in verse number 20, but it's not contrary to the purposes of God. Then he makes this statement in verse number 21. He said, if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. If there was some rule God could give all of us, that every one of us could keep, that in keeping that rule, we would all be made right with God, he would have given it to us. But there is no rule so simple so important, so easy, or so complex that could ever make us righteous before God. So well, how, how do you know that, Brother Jesse? Because I, I feel like I'm a pretty good person. I feel like, you know, I've done all right in life. And I feel like I maybe could keep uh, this perfect, magical rule if God gave it. You know why I know you can never do it? Here's why. I want you to listen up today. Because there was a time, according to the Bible, there was a time in the history of the world when God created Adam and Eve and put them under a covenant of works, that the only thing they had to do to be made right with God, the only thing they had to do was not eat a stinking piece of fruit. That's it. That's it. There wasn't no tithing. There wasn't no church. There wasn't no come and listen to a preacher yell at them for an hour every Sunday. None of that. Don't eat that piece of fruit. That's it. Now go have a big time. What did they stinking do? Adam asked his wife, honey, what do you want for supper? She said, you know, I've been craving fruit salad. Our nature, our nature is so rebellious. Our nature is so bent toward violating what God tells us to do that no matter what God said, we would never do it. And so here's what we've done. We think we've come up with an easy fix. Here's what we've done. We know we can never keep God's rules, so we come up with our own rules. And we try and keep those rules, and we condemn everybody who doesn't keep our rules. That's what human beings have been doing ever since. Matthew chapter 23, Jesus condemns a group of people called the Pharisees for doing exactly that. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. He said, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin. They would come to church with teaspoons full of stuff from their spots rack. Say, Lord, this is yours. This mint is yours. But he said, you have neglected the weightier matters of the law. He said, justice and mercy and faithfulness. He said, those things you should have done without neglecting the others. And he said, you are blind guides. Blind guides straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Jesus said, you have invented these rules that you can keep. And you think in keeping these rules, you have proven how spiritual you are. But you have missed the point completely because you're not honoring God from the heart in love and mercy and justice and faithfulness. Remember this summer as we studied the Sermon on the Mount, 
Jesus quotes from the Ten Commandments, and he says, you've heard it said, thou shalt not commit adultery. And all of us have heard that. And what do we do? We look at that commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery, and we say, because my body has never committed adultery, I've never committed adultery. That's the way we feel. Jesus comes along, and Jesus says to us, if you've lusted after somebody in your heart that you're not married to, you're guilty of adultery. Jesus says there's no law that you could keep that can ever get into your heart because the problem here is not the law of God. The problem's you. Romans chapter 7, verse number 12, Paul said, So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. The law is good. You're not. Which is why the law was given. Because God in grace revealed His nature, revealed His standards, revealed His righteousness so that you would see how sinful you were, so that you would stop trusting in yourself, and so that you would look to Christ alone to save you, so that you would take an honest, good, hard look at yourself and say, in me there is no hope of salvation, in me there is no hope of goodness, and I need somebody else to save me. And Paul said, that somebody, his name is Jesus. And he came to save people just like that, who realize they cannot do it themselves. Who realize that they can never be good enough. Who realize that they can never earn it. Who realize they can never be righteous enough. This is the good news and the bad news of the law. The good news and the bad news of the law is that in giving the law that condemns us, God is showing he doesn't want us to be condemned. In showing us how guilty we are in the law, God is working to save us from our guilt. He's working to deliver us from that spirit of self-righteousness that wants to prove ourselves, that wants to earn our blessing, that wants to take credit for what we have done. God is trying to break the shackles of religion, and He's trying to get us to Jesus. That's why He gave the law. Not because He wanted us to be law keepers because he wanted to take rule breakers like us and make us sons. Which is the last principle in this text. And it's this. As Paul finishes, moving into chapter 4, verse 23, Paul gives us this principle. The law is a great teacher, but a terrible savior. The law is a great teacher, but a terrible savior. Paul says, before faith came, before we put our faith in Jesus, he says, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. We were put in this place, Paul says, where we realized that we could never keep the law on our own, where we knew that somebody would have to deliver us, somebody would have to rescue us, and we never knew who the Savior was. We just knew it wasn't us. Then he said, one day Jesus came, and we found out it was him. God has always and only saved through Jesus, his promised deliverer, and then he compares it to being a child. He said, the law was our guardian. Maybe your Bible says schoolmaster or tutor until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. And what Paul's talking about there when he uses that word guardian is he is talking about a very specific kind of teacher in ancient culture. It was a tutor, many times a slave, that would be hired by typically a wealthy family, a wealthy man, to teach his sons. And what this slave would do, or what this teacher would do, is this teacher would follow those kids around, everything that they did, teaching them not just the basics of education, reading, writing, arithmetic, and all that, though they would do that, they would also teach them how to behave in society. They would also teach them how to act and represent the family and how to be mature sons who could step into their role in running the affairs of the family. And that slave, 
even though it was a slave, that slave would beat those kids. That slave would ridicule those kids. That slave would push those kids. That slave would be impossibly hard on those kids until they reached a point of maturity to where they could step into their role as grown-ups. Paul said that's exactly what the law did. The law was beating us and hurting us and killing us and ridiculing us and showing us what we needed to be, but it never could bring us to maturity. Jesus brought us to maturity. And as he did, we are now, he says, verse 25 and 26, we are now sons of God through faith. We are now full, mature, welcomed sons. This is the crux of the book of Galatians. This is the heartbeat. If you put your finger on Galatians 3, 26 and 27 and 28, you put your finger there on the book of Galatians and you will feel the pulse of the Apostle Paul as he proclaims the gospel. You will feel the pulse of God himself who does not save us by making us religious, but he saves us by welcoming us into his family. He saves us by giving us a relationship with him. And there's a couple images that Paul uses to describe that relationship. The first is in verse number 27. He says, For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Now, it's not necessarily clear whether Paul's talking about actual physical baptism that symbolizes the gospel and our relationship with God, or whether he's talking about our spiritual immersion into Jesus. I take it to mean the latter. And you know, I hope that we are Baptists. This is a Baptist church. And we believe in baptism by immersion. We believe that so much that we think that's the only way you actually can baptize and still be baptizing people. Though I will give them credit, the Greek Orthodox and the Russian Orthodox churches, a lot of times they baptize babies and they'll take in little fellas and they'll dunk them. You can go on YouTube and you can look it up. They'll take these babies that are like two weeks old and they're just dousing them. It's awesome. So at least they're doing it right, all right? But Baptists have believed, Baptists have believed so strongly in baptism by immersion that the very first Baptist in Germany, they called them dunkards. We are Sharon Heights Dunker Church. That's what we do. Because if you get saved and come to Jesus, we are going to dunk you. That's what we are. We're dunkers, all right? So, make sure, you know why we went with Baptist. Dunkers not. But what Paul is saying, you have to understand this idea of immersion to get what he's saying. He's saying we have been immersed into Jesus. We have been submerged into him. We have been dunked. Into Jesus. So Paul's saying that when we are dunked into Christ by faith, He becomes ours and we become His. All of our all of our sin, all of our guilt, all of the law that condemns us, it all becomes His. And all of His righteousness and all of His grace and all of His blessings, all of those things become ours because He is ours. Friends, understand me today that through grace, God in the gospel gives us Jesus. And through grace, Jesus in the gospel gives us God. The good news of the gospel is that God himself becomes ours. It's not merely that we are forgiven of our sins. It's not merely that we have a home in heaven. The hope and the blessing of the gospel is not merely that our past is washed away, even though, thank God, it is. The hope of the gospel is that Jesus is ours. And all of that other stuff is ours because He is ours. And the offer of the gospel today is not merely heaven. It's not merely forgiveness. The offer of the gospel that I can make to all of you today is that if you will come to Him, Jesus will have you. 
And you will have Him. And you can come to Him with nothing but your sin and nothing but your regret and nothing but your guilt and nothing but your past. And when you get Him, you will receive nothing but His grace and nothing but His love and nothing but His mercy and nothing but the arms of the Father saying, Come and welcome to Jesus. So what Paul's getting at here is this. He's saying that if we think about knowing God in any other way, it is a childish way of thinking about God. It's a childish way of thinking about God. Remember what it was like to be a kid? My mom reminded me of this just the other day. When I was a kid, for some reason, I was terrified my parents were going to get divorced. And so any time there would be any disagreement at all, what are we going to watch on TV tonight? And there's a disagreement. I'll say, are y'all going to get divorced? I'd ask them. And a lot of times, kids go through that. They go through that insecurity. Mom, Dad, do you really love me? Do you, do you, do you, am I really there for, are you really there for me? Are you really going to take care of me? Am I really going to be okay? There's an insecurity in childhood until a certain point of maturity is reached. Paul is saying that if we really do just think about impressing God by our works, that's an immature way of thinking about God that will always lead to insecurity. Because we've wondered, what if I haven't done enough? Maybe God really doesn't love me. Paul said the gospel teaches us a mature way to know God, and that is through Christ the Son who makes us sons. And then he finishes by saying this. It's the second image he gives. He says, For as many as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. That's an image that Paul actually uses quite a bit in Scripture. And it's the idea of putting on clothes. He's saying, as it were, you have been clothed in Jesus. And I think there are two things that he means through this. And both of these are important. First, Paul says that your clothes identify you. And that's true. It may not be as true in our culture as it used to be, but in many ways it is still true. Like somebody years ago decided that pastors and preachers had to wear suits and ties. And so that helps identify us for whatever reason. If I ever meet that joker, I'm going to give him the right foot of fellowship. But <laughs> if, if somebody shows up at your house tonight and his hat and his shirt and his car says Papa John, you know who he is. His clothes identify him. What Paul is saying that as believers now, Jesus is what identifies us. Now hang on. Get, now get your head around this. You're not identified by what you used to be in your sin. You're not identified by how good you were on your best day. You're not identified by how bad you were on your worst day. You are identified by Jesus. That everything you used to be is wrapped up and swallowed up in Him, just the way our clothes wrap us up in Him. We're no longer in these categories of worthy or unworthy, but we are totally lost, as it were, in Jesus. He has become our righteousness in the way we identify ourselves. But our clothes, the second reason Paul gives this image, I think, is because, you don't think about it, but your clothes are kind of intimate. Like in, in our building today, my wife's here, my daughter's here, my mother's here. Those are three people that I love more than anybody else in the world. But there's still a sense in which my socks are still a whole lot closer to me than they are. You get what I'm saying? Because they're touching me. They're right on top of me. I'm connected. We are almost attached Paul wants us to think about our connection to Jesus as being that intimate, but even really more intimate than that. That Jesus swallows up my past. He swallows up my present. He swallows up my future. That everything I am and everything I have, it's Jesus swallowing me up. Which means that if I am that transformed and swallowed up by Jesus, then really 
There is no Jew nor Greek. There is no slave nor free, no male or female. We are all one in Christ Jesus because all of us, circling back to what he said, all of us have believed the same promise Abraham believed with the same kind of faith Abraham had. And if we are in Jesus, we are all as welcome as everybody else. What Paul does is he destroys the religious thinking in the church of Galatia. Because what religious thinking does, if religion says to you, you earn your blessings from God based upon your performance, then frankly, there are going to be some Christians who are more Christian than others. Right? Because some Christians carry the right kind of Bible. Some Christians dress right. Some Christians have the right kind of family. Some Christians have the right spiritual gifts. Some Christians have the right experiences, go to the right kind of church. Some of us are just more Christian than others. Paul said, no, you're not. And you don't have the right to feel inferior to anybody else. And you don't have the right to feel superior to anybody else because we are all one in Christ Jesus. Religious, religion always grades people and puts them in boxes and say, you're on this level and you're that level and you're a C student and you're an A student. And it's all these class systems where we compare ourselves. Paul said, no, in Jesus, none of you are better than the rest. None of you are worse than the rest. Quit looking up to other people saying, I wish I could just be like them, but my past won't let me. Paul says to us, the old cliche is true. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. Now, does this mean that in Christ, if there's not Jew or, or Greek or slave or free or male or female, does that mean that we cease being white or black or Jew or Greek or male and female? No. I mean, you can take a look and realize that I'm still a white guy. If you don't believe it, go watch me dance sometime. You will know that I am a white guy. And you'll know that I was raised by Baptists. Because I'm not going to dance. I'm going to stand there and pray for all them sinners that are dancing. But what Paul is saying, whether I'm white, whether I'm black, whether I have a background of being religious, whether I have a background of being irreligious, uh, no matter what my social standing, whether I'm slave or free, male or female, what Paul is saying is that I am not better than anybody because of Jesus. And I am not worse than anybody because of Jesus. My guilt is gone. Whatever privileges I may have are gone. The old cliche is right. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. But here's the thing that Paul's getting at, man. Here's the thing. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. But I want you to hear me today. The ground is solid at the foot of the cross. That's Paul's point in Galatians chapter 3. That if we have come through Jesus the way Abraham came, then we are welcomed, we are accepted, we are loved, we are known, we are sons, and we are daughters. No matter what past we bring with us, no matter what guilt we bring with us, no matter what self-righteousness we bring with us, no matter what race we bring with us, no matter what economic background we bring with us, when we come to Jesus, we are welcome. Jesus said, all that the Father giveth to me shall come to me, and the Father has given him all kinds. And him that cometh to me, Jesus said, I will in no wise, I'll never under any circumstances, for any reason, I'll never cast them out. Ever. Friend, the ground is level there. And it is solid. You can stand there no matter what life throws your way. So today, my question is really, and I wish I could just see into our hearts, because it's in all of us, that we really want to believe that somehow we connect with God on the basis of what we do. That we've earned a good grade, or we've done enough, or we've been religious enough, 
We've been good to people, haven't judged people, whatever the criteria we want to use. I've been good enough to be accepted by God. That's what we want to believe. And that's in all of us. I don't wonder how many of you really do believe that. And what you need to do is you need to just bow in your heart right now and say, Lord, I can never do enough to impress you, but Jesus paid it all. He did it all. And I want to stand before you trusting in Christ alone. As our musicians come, here's what I want us to do today. I want us to, to stand up all together. I want everybody here to bow your head and close your eyes. I just want to ask you a couple questions. And I'm going to ask you just to be honest with me, okay? And I know how it is in church. Church should be the easiest place in the world to be honest, shouldn't it? But for some reason, man, it's hard to be honest here. We have to feel like we have to play a part and look a certain way and all this kind of stuff. But I'm just going to ask you just to be honest. With nobody looking around, please, everybody's head bowed, everybody's eye closed. I'm not going to ask you today whether you're lost or whether you're saved. I'm not going to ask you today whether you're going to heaven or hell. I'm going to ask you this. How many of you can look in your heart and say, in my heart, I'm just too religious? Because I judge other people, I judge myself. I'm filled with doubt, wondering if I measure up. I don't have confidence that God loves me every day. Because sometimes I screw up and blow it, and I feel like He may have cast me out. How many of you are just too religious? Would you put your hand up? I see a couple of you putting your hands up. 